Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Preface of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Preface to the Revised Edition. Like millions of my race, my mother and father were born slaves, but were not contented to live and die so. My father purchased himself in early manhood by hard toil. Mother saw no way for herself and children to escape the horrors of bondage but by flight. Bravely, with her four little ones, with firm faith in God and an ardent desire to be free, she forsook the prison house and succeeded, through the aid of my father, to reach a free state. Her life had to be begun anew. The old familiar slave names had to be changed, and others, for prudential reasons, had to be found. This was not hard work. However, Hardly months had passed ere the keen scent of the slave hunters had trailed them to where they had fancied themselves secure. In those days, all power was in the hands of the oppressor, and the capture of a slave mother and her children was attended with no great difficulty other than the crushing of freedom in the breasts of the victims. Without judge or jury, all were hurried back to wear the yoke again but back this mother was resolved never to stay. She only wanted another opportunity to again strike for freedom. In a few months after being carried back, with only two of her little ones, she took her heart in her hand and her babes in her arms, and this trial was a success. Freedom was gained, although not without the sad loss of her two older children, whom she had to leave behind father and mother were again reunited in freedom, while two of their little boys were in slavery. What to do for them, other than weep and pray, were questions unanswerable. For over forty years, the mother's heart never knew what it was to be free from anxiety about her lost boys. But no tidings came in answer to her many prayers, until one of them, to the great astonishment of his relatives, turned up in Philadelphia nearly fifty years of age, seeking his long-lost parents. Being directed to the anti-slavery office for instructions as to the best plan to adopt to find out the whereabouts of his parents, fortunately he fell into the hands of his own brother, the writer, whom he had never heard of before, much less seen or known. And here began revelations connected with this marvelous coincidence 
which influenced me, for years previous to emancipation, to preserve the matter found in the pages of this humble volume. And in looking back now over these strange and eventful providences, in the light of the wonderful changes wrought by emancipation, I am more and more constrained to believe that the reasons which years ago led me to aid the bondman and preserve the records of his sufferings are today quite as potent in convincing me that the necessity of the times requires this testimony. And since the first advent of my book, wherever reviewed or read by leading friends of freedom, the press, or the race more deeply represented by it, the expressions of approval and encouragement have been hearty and unanimous, and the thousands of volumes which have been sold by me on the subscription plan with hardly any facilities for the work makes it obvious that it would, in the hands of a competent publisher, have a wide circulation. And here I may frankly state that but for the hope I have always cherished that this work would encourage the race in efforts for self-elevation, its publication never would have been undertaken by me. I believe no more strongly at this moment than I have believed ever since the proclamation of emancipation was made by Abraham Lincoln, that as a class, in this country, no small exertion will have to be put forward before the blessings of freedom and knowledge can be fairly enjoyed by this people, and until colored men manage by dint of hard acquisition to enter the ranks of skilled industry, very little substantial respect will be shown them, even with the ballot-box and musket in their hands. Well-conducted shops and stores, land acquired and good farms managed in a manner to compete with any other, valuable books produced and published on interesting and important subjects, these are some of the fruits which the race are expected to exhibit from their newly gained privileges. If it is asked, how? I answer, through extraordinary determination and endeavor, such as are demonstrated in hundreds of cases in the pages of this book, in the struggles of men and women to obtain their freedom, education, and property. These facts must never be lost sight of. The race must not forget the rock from whence they were hewn, nor the pit from whence they were digged. Like other races, this newly emancipated people will need all the knowledge of their past condition which they can get. The bondage and deliverance of the children of Israel will never be allowed to sink into oblivion while the world stands. Those scenes of suffering and martyrdom millions of Christians were called upon to pass through in the days of the Inquisition are still subjects of study, and have unabated interest for all enlightened minds. The same is true of the history of this country. The struggles of the pioneer fathers are preserved, produced, and reproduced, and cherished with undying interest by all Americans, and the day will not arrive while the Republic exists when these histories will not be found in every library. While the grand little army of abolitionists was waging its untiring warfare for freedom prior to the rebellion. No agency encouraged them like the heroism of fugitives. The pulse of the four millions of slaves and their desire for freedom were better felt through the Underground Railroad than through any other channel. Frederick Douglass, Henry Bibb, William Wells Brown, Rev. J. W. Logan, and others 
gave unmistakable evidence that the race had no more eloquent advocates than its own self-emancipated champions. Every step they took to rid themselves of their fetters, or to gain education, or in pleading the cause of their fellow bondmen in the lecture-room, or with their pens, met with applause on every hand, and the very argument needed was thus furnished in large measure. In those dark days previous to emancipation, such testimony was indispensable. The free-colored men are as imperatively required now to furnish the same manly testimony in support of the ability of the race to surmount the remaining obstacles growing out of oppression, ignorance, and poverty. In the political struggles, the hopes of the race have been sadly disappointed. From this direction no great advantage is likely to arise very soon. Only as desert can be proved by the acquisition of knowledge and the exhibition of high moral character in examples of economy and a disposition to encourage industrial enterprises conducted by men of their own ranks will it be possible to make political progress in the face of the present public sentiment. Here, therefore, in my judgment, is the best possible reason for vigorously pushing the circulation of this humble volume, that it may testify for thousands and tens of thousands, as no other work can do. William Still, Author September, 1878 Philadelphia, Pennsylvania The following brief sketch, touching the separation of Peter and his mother, will fitly illustrate this point, and at the same time explain certain mysteries which have been hitherto kept hidden. The Separation With regard to Peter's separation from his mother, when a little boy, in few words, the facts were these. His parents, Levin and Sidney, were both slaves on the eastern shore of Maryland. I will die before I submit to the yoke, was the declaration of his father to his young master before either was twenty-one years of age. Consequently, he was allowed to buy himself at a very low figure, and he paid the required sum and obtained his free papers when quite a young man, the young wife and mother remaining in slavery under Saunders Griffin, as also her children, the latter having increased to the number of four, two little boys and two little girls. But to escape from chains, stripes, and bondage, she took her four little children and fled to a place near Greenwich, New Jersey, not a great while, however, did she remain there in the state of freedom before the slave hunters pursued her, and one night they pounced upon the whole family, and without judge or jury hurried them all back to slavery. Whether this was kidnapping or not is for the reader to decide for himself. Safe back in the hands of her owner, to prevent her from escaping a second time, every night for about three months she was cautiously kept locked up in the garret, until, as they supposed, she was fully cured of the desire to do so again. But she was incurable. She had been a witness to the fact that her own father's brains had been blown out by the discharge of a heavily loaded gun, deliberately aimed at his head by his drunken master. She only needed half a chance to make still greater struggles for even greater freedom. She had faith in God, and found much solace in singing some of the good old Methodist tunes by day and night. Her owner, Observing this apparently tranquil state of mind, indicating that she seemed better contented than ever, concluded that it was safe to let the garret door remain unlocked at night. Not many weeks were allowed to pass before she resolved to again make a bold strike for freedom. 
This time she had to leave the two little boys, Levin and Peter, behind. On the night she started, she went to the bed where they were sleeping, kissed them, and, consigning them to the hands of God, bade her mother goodbye, and with her two little girls wended her way again to Burlington County, New Jersey, but to a different neighborhood from that where she had been seized. She changed her name to Charity and succeeded in again joining her husband, but, alas, with a heartbreaking thought that she had been compelled to leave her two little boys in slavery and one of the little girls on the road for her father to go back after. Thus she began life in freedom anew. Levin and Peter, eight and six years of age respectively, were now left at the mercy of the enraged owner, and were soon hurried off to a southern market and sold, while their mother, for whom they were daily weeping, was they knew not where. They were too young to know that they were slaves, or to understand the nature of the afflicting separation. Sixteen years before Peter's return, his older brother, Levin, died a slave in the state of Alabama, and was buried by the surviving brother, Peter. No idea other than that they had been kidnapped from their mother ever entered into their minds, nor had they any knowledge of the state from whence they supposedly had been taken, the last names of their mother or father, or where they were born. On the other hand, the mother was aware that the safety of herself and her rescued children depended on keeping the whole transaction a strict family secret. During the forty years of separation, except for two or three Quaker friends, including the devoted friend of the slave, Benjamin Lundy, it is doubtful whether any other individuals were let into the secret of her slave life. And when the account given of Peter's return, etc., was published in 1850, it led some of the family to apprehend serious danger from the partial revelation of the early condition of the mother, especially as it was about the time that the Fugitive Slave Law was passed. Hence, the author of The Kidnapped and the Ransomed was compelled to admit these dangerous facts and had to confine herself strictly to the personal recollections of Peter Still, with regard to his being kidnapped. Likewise, in a sketch of Seth Conklin's eventful life, written by Mr. W. H. Furness, for similar reasons he felt obliged to make but bare reference to his wonderful agency in relation to Peter's family, although he was fully aware of all the facts in the case. Section 1. Seth Conklin. Part Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here for the Gist of Freedom. You've been listening to excerpts from the book, The Underground Railroad, by William Steele, written in about 1871. And we will, here on the Gist of Freedom, will be reading that book for the next several uh, weeks. I want to bring in Leslie Gist, author and the producer of the Gist of Freedom, uh, who was inspired to write her own book, which is entitled The Gist of Freedom is Still Faith. And she'll be joining us right now. Hi, Leslie. Hello, Preston. Thank you for doing such a wonderful job um, on The Gist of Freedom as a host. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, and you're going to talk to us. Well, listening to the preface there, um, I'm amazed that he sold so many books, and I guess the way to do that back in the day was through uh, subscriptions, and he was selling thousands of books. Right, because he had hundreds of stories in these books, hundreds of hundreds of narratives about different um, heroic escapes, um, and, you know, just like today, many people want to know 
uh, if they were part of the Underground Railroad, and, and especially back then, you know, mostly uh, 80% of the people had someone in their family enslaved, mm-hmm. and many of them weren't reunited in 1871, and this was a way to find out and be reconnected to their um, their loved ones. Now, did I hear correctly that his family escaped twice from slavery? Yes. Uh, it's, the book is going to go into details. I don't want to get too much away. Okay. But um, this is an, an incredible book, and um, you just heard the preface. Um, this is a revised preface. The, the actual, the original copy um, has a different preface. He's very eloquent. Uh, he, he was um, a beautiful writer, uh, William Sterling. Um, also wanted to mention that he um, he was also known as a, an attorney. We're finding that. Some of his uh, books has his name signed ESQ at the end. Oh, so, okay. um, yeah, so he ended up becoming a millionaire. The New York Times said he died worth nearly a million dollars in 1902. Um, you know, he helped with the civil um, civil rights movement uh, prior to the emancipation. He fought uh, Jim Crow and the segregation on the streetcar. So he did a lot. And he uh, wrote a different book, another book as well. But let's go on to the um, the next clip, which is about um, talk about his Seth brother, or his Seth brother. Conklin, Seth Conklin and Peter. And let's turn on that clip right now. Okay. The Underground Railroad, Part One, by William Still, Section One, Seth Conklin, Part One. In the long list of names who have suffered and died in the cause of freedom, not one, perhaps, could be found whose efforts to redeem a poor family of slaves were more Christ-like than Seth Conklin's, whose noble and daring spirit has been so long completely shrouded in mystery. Except John Brown, it is a question whether his rival could be found with respect to boldness, disinterestedness, and willingness to be sacrificed for the deliverance of the oppressed. By chance one day he came across a copy of the Pennsylvania Freeman containing the story of Peter Sill, the kidnapped and the ransomed. How he had been torn away from his mother when a little boy six years old. How, for forty years and more, he had been compelled to serve under the yoke, totally destitute as to any knowledge of his parents' whereabouts. How the intense love of liberty and desire to get back to his mother had unceasingly absorbed his mind through all these years of bondage. How... Amid the most appalling discouragements, prompted by his undying determination to be free and to be reunited with those from whom he had been sold away, he contrived to buy himself. How, by extreme economy, from doing overwork, he saved up five hundred dollars, the amount of money required for his ransom, which, with his freedom, he, from necessity, placed unreservedly in the confidential keeping of a Jew named Joseph Friedman, whom he had known for a long time and could venture to trust. How he had further toiled to save up money to defray his expenses on an expedition in search of his mother and kindred. How, when this end was accomplished, with an earnest purpose, he took his carpet-bag in his hand, and his heart throbbing for his old home and people, he turned his mind very privately towards Philadelphia, where he hoped, by having notices read in the colored churches, to the effect that, forty-one or forty-two years before two little boys were kidnapped and carried south, that the memory of some of the older members might recall the circumstances 
and in this way he would be aided in his ardent efforts to become restored to them. And furthermore, Seth Conklin had read how, on arriving in Philadelphia, after traveling 1,600 miles, that almost the first man whom Peter Still had sought advice from was his own unknown brother, whom he had never seen or heard of, who made the discovery that he was the long-lost boy whose history and fate had been enveloped in sadness so long, and for whom his mother had shed so many tears and offered so many prayers during the long years of their separation. And finally, how the self-ransomed and restored captive, notwithstanding his great success, was destined to suffer the keenest pangs of sorrow for his wife and children, whom he had left in Alabama bondage. Seth Conklin was naturally too singularly sympathetic and humane not to feel now for Peter, and especially for his wife and children, left in bonds as bound with them. Hence, as Seth was a man who seemed wholly insensible to fear, and to know no other law of humanity and right, than whenever the claims of suffering and the wrong appealed to him to respond unreservedly, whether those thus injured were amongst his nearest kin or the greatest strangers, it mattered not to what race or clime they might belong. He, in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, owning all such as his neighbors, volunteered his services, without pay or regard, to go and rescue the wife and three children of Peter Still. The magnitude of this offer can hardly be appreciated. It was literally laying his life on the altar of freedom for the despised and oppressed whom he had never seen, whose kinsfolk even he was not acquainted with. At this juncture even Peter was not prepared to accept this proposal. He wanted to secure the freedom of his wife and children as earnestly as he had ever desired to see his mother, yet he could not, at first, hearken to the idea of having them rescued in any way suggested by Conklin, fearing a failure. To J. M. McKim and the writer, the bold scheme for the deliverance of Peter's family was alone confided. It was never submitted to the Vigilance Committee, for the reason that it was not considered a matter belonging thereto. On first reflection, the very idea of such an undertaking seemed perfectly appalling. Frankly, he was told of the great dangers and difficulties to be encountered through hundreds of miles of slave territory. Seth was told of those who, in attempting to aid slaves to escape, had fallen victims to the relentless slave power and had either lost their lives or been incarcerated for long years in penitentiaries where no friendly aid could be afforded them. In short, he was plainly told that without a very great chance the undertaking would cost him his life. The occasion of this interview and conversation, the seriousness of Conklin and the utter failure in presenting the various obstacles to his plan to create the slightest apparent misgivings in his mind, or to produce the slightest sense of fear or hesitancy, can never be effaced from the memory of the writer. The plan was, however, allowed to rest for a time. In the meanwhile, Peter's mind was continually vacillating between Alabama, with his wife and children, and his newfound relatives in the north. Said a brother, If you cannot get your family, what will you do? Will you come north and live with your relatives? I would as soon go out of the world as not go back and do all I can for them, was the prompt reply of Peter. But here obstacles quite formidably lay in the way. Alabama laws utterly denied the right of a slave to buy himself, much less his wife and children. The right of slave masters to free their slaves, either by sale or emancipation, was positively prohibited by law. With these reflections weighing upon his mind, having stayed away from his wife as long as he could content himself to do, he took his carpet-bag in his hand and turned his face toward Alabama to embrace his family in the prison-house of bondage. 
His approach home could only be made stealthily, not daring to breathe to a living soul, save his own family, his nominal Jew master, and one other friend, a slave, where he had been, the prize he had found, or anything in relation to his travels. To his wife and children his return was unspeakably joyous. The situation of his family concerned him with tenfold more weight than ever before. As the time drew near to make the offer to his wife's master to purchase her with his children, his heart failed him through fear of awakening the ire of slaveholders against him, as he knew that the law and public sentiment were alike deadly opposed to the spirit of freedom in the slave. Indeed, as innocent as a step in this direction might appear, in those days a man would have stood about as good a chance for his life in entering a lair of hungry hyenas as a slave or free-colored man would in talking about freedom. He concluded, therefore, to say nothing about buying. The plan proposed by Seth Conklin was told to Vina, his wife, also what he had heard from his brother about the Underground Railroad, how that many who could not get their freedom in any other way, by being aided a little, were daily escaping to Canada. Although his wife and children had never tasted the pleasures of freedom for a single hour in their lives, they hated slavery heartily, and being about to be so far separated from husband and father, they were ready to assent to any proposition that looked like deliverance. So Peter proposed to Vina that she should give him certain small articles, consisting of a cape, etc., which he would carry with him as memorials, and, in case Conklin or anyone else should ever come for her from him, as an unmistakable sign that all was right, he would send back, by whoever was to befriend them, the cape, so that she and the children might not doubt but have faith in the man, when he gave her the sign, cape. Again Peter returned to Philadelphia, and was now willing to accept the offer of Conklin. Ere long, the opportunity of an interview was had, and Peter gave Seth a very full description of the country and of his family, and made known to him that he had very carefully gone over with his wife and children the matter of their freedom. This interview interested Conklin most deeply. If his own wife and children had been in bondage, scarcely could he have manifested greater sympathy for them. For the hazardous work before him, he was at once prepared to make a start. True, he had two sisters in Philadelphia for whom he had always cherished the warmest affection, but he conferred not with them on this momentous mission. Full well did he know that it was not in human nature for them to acquiesce in this perilous undertaking, though one of these sisters, Mrs. Supley, was a most faithful abolitionist. Having once laid his hand to the plow, he was not the man to look back, not even to bid his sisters good-bye, but he actually left them as though he expected to be home to his dinner as usual. What had become of him during those many weeks of his perilous labors in Alabama to rescue this family was to none a greater mystery than to his sisters. On leaving home, he simply took two or three small articles in the way of apparel, with one hundred dollars to defray his expenses for a time, this sum he considered ample to start with. Of course, he had very safely concealed about him Venus Cape, and one or two other articles which he was to use for his identification in meeting her and the children on the plantation. His first thought was, on reaching his destination, after becoming acquainted with the family, being familiar with southern manners, to have them all prepared at a given hour for the starting of a steamboat for Cincinnati, and to join him at the wharf, when he would boldly assume the part of slaveholder, and the family naturally that of slaves, and in this way he hoped to reach Cincinnati direct, before their owner had fairly discovered their escape. But alas for southern irregularity, two or three days' delay after being advertised to start was no uncommon circumstance with steamers. Hence this plan was abandoned. 
what this heroic man endured from severe struggles and unyielding exertions in travelling thousands of miles on water and on foot hungry and fatigued rowing his living freight for seven days and seven nights in a skiff is hardly to be paralleled in the annals of the underground railroad the following interesting letters penned by the hand of conklin convey minutely his last struggles and characteristically represent the singleness of heart which impelled him to sacrifice his life for the slave eastport mississippi february third eighteen fifty one to william still our friends in cincinnati have failed finding anybody to assist me on my return searching the country opposite paducah i find that the whole country fifty miles around is inhabited only by christian wolves it is customary when a strange negro is seen for any white man to seize the negro and convey such negro through and out of the state of illinois to paducah kentucky and lodge such stranger in paducah jail and there claim such reward as may be offered by the master there is no regularity by the steamboats on the tennessee river i was four days getting to florence from paducah sometimes they are four days starting from the time appointed which alone puts to rest the plan for returning by steamboat the distance from the mouth of the river to florence is between three hundred and five to three hundred and forty five miles by the river by land two hundred and fifty or more i arrived at the shoe shop on the plantation one o'clock tuesday twenty eighth william and two boys were making shoes i immediately gave the first signal anxiously waited thirty minutes for an opportunity to give the second and main signal during which time i was very sociable it was rainy and muddy my pants were rolled up to the knees i was in the character of a man seeking employment in this country and of thirty minutes gave the second signal william appeared unmoved soon sent out the boys instantly sociable peter and levin at the island one of the young masters with them not safe to undertake to see them till saturday night when they would be at home appointed a place to see vena in an open field that night they to bring me something to eat our interview only four minutes i left appeared by night dark and cloudy at ten o'clock appeared william exchanged signs led me a few rods to where stood vena gave her the signal sent by peter our interview ten minutes she did not call me master nor did she say sir by which i knew she had confidence in me our situation being dangerous we decided that i meet peter and levin on the bank of the river early dawn of day sunday to establish the laws during our interview william prostrated on his knees and face to the ground arms sprawling head cocked back watching for wolves by which position a man can see better in the dark no house to go to safely traveled round till morning eating hoe cake which william had given me for supper next day going around to get employment i thought of william who is a christian preacher and of the christian preachers in pennsylvania one watching for wolves by night to rescue vena and her three children from christian licentiousness the other standing erect in open day seeking the praise of men during the four days waiting for the important sunday morning i thoroughly surveyed the rocks and shoals of the river from florence seven miles up where will be my place of departure general notice was taken of me as being a stranger lurking around fortunately there are several small grist mills within ten miles around no taverns here as in the north any planter's house entertains travelers occasionally one night i stayed at a medical gentleman's who is not a large planter another night at an ex-magistrate's house in south florence a virginian by birth one of the late census-takers 
told me that many more persons cannot read and write than is reported. One fact, amongst many others, that many persons who do not know the letters of the alphabet have learned to write their own names. Such are generally reported readers and writers. It being customary for a stranger not to leave the house early in the morning where he has lodged, I was under the necessity of staying out all night Saturday to be able to meet Peter and Levin, which was accomplished in due time. When we approached, I gave my signal first. Immediately they gave theirs. I talked freely. Levin's voice, at first, evidently troubled. No wonder, for my presence universally attracted attention by the lords of the land. Our interview was less than one hour. The laws were written. I go to Cincinnati to get a rowing boat and provisions, a first-class clipper boat to go with speed, to depart from the place where the laws were written, on Saturday night of the 1st of March, I to meet one of them at the same place Thursday night, previous to the fourth Saturday from the night previous to the Sunday when the laws were written. We were to go down the Tennessee River to some place upon the Ohio, not yet decided on, in our rowboat. Peter and Levin are good oarsmen. So am I. Telegraph station at Tuscumbia, twelve miles from the plantation, also at Paducah. Came from Florence to here Sunday night by steamboat. Eastport is in Mississippi. Waiting here for a steamboat to go down, paying one dollar a day for board. Like other taverns here, the wretchedness is indescribable. No pen, ink, paper, or newspaper to be had. Only one room for everybody, except the gambling rooms. It is difficult for me to write. Vina intends to get a pass for Catherine and herself for the first Sunday in March. The bank of the river where I met Peter and Levin is two miles from the plantation. I have avoided saying I am from Philadelphia, also avoided talking about Negroes. I never talked so much about milling before. I consider most of the trouble over till I arrive in a free state with my crew the first week in March. Then we'll have to be wiser than Christian serpents and more cautious than doves. I do not consider it safe to keep this letter in my possession, yet I dare not put it in the post office here. There is so little business in these post offices that notice might be taken. I am evidently watched. Everybody knows me to be a miller. I may write again when I get to Cincinnati, if I should have time. The ex-magistrate, with whom I stayed in South Florence, held three hours' talk with me, exclusive of our morning talk, is a man of good general information. I was exceedingly inquisitive. I am from Cincinnati, formerly from the state of New York. I had no opportunity to get anything to eat from seven o'clock Tuesday morning till six o'clock Wednesday evening, except the hoe cake and no sleep. Florence is the head of navigation for small steamboats. Seven miles, all the way up to my place of departure, is swift water and rocky. Eight hundred miles to Cincinnati. I found all things here, as Peter told me, except the distance of the river. South Florence contains twenty white families, three warehouses of considerable business, a post office, but no school. McKiernan is here, waiting for a steamboat to go to New Orleans, so we are in company. 2. Seth Conklin, Part 2. Houston, Gibson County, Indiana, February 18, 1851. 2. William Still. The plan is to go to Canada, on the Wabash, opposite Detroit. There are four routes to Canada, one through Illinois, commencing above and below Alton, one through to North Indiana, and the Cincinnati route, being the longest route in the United States. I intended to have gone through Pennsylvania, but the risk going up the Ohio River has caused me to go to Canada. 
Steamboat traveling is universally condemned, though many go in boats, consequently many get lost. Going in a skiff is new, and is approved of in my case. After I arrive at the mouth of the Tennessee River, I go up the Ohio 75 miles to the mouth of the Wabash, then up the Wabash 44 miles to New Harmony, where I shall go ashore by night, and go 13 miles east to Charles Greer, a farmer, colored man, who will entertain us, and the next night convey us 16 miles to David Storman, near Princeton, who will take the command, and I be released. David Storman estimates the expenses from his house to Canada at $40, without which no sure protection will be given. They might be instructed concerning the course, and beg their way through without money. If you wish to do what should be done, you will send me $50 in a letter to Princeton, Gibson County, Indiana, so as to arrive there by the 8th of March. Eight days should be estimated for a letter to arrive from Philadelphia. The money to be State Bank of Ohio, or State Bank, or Northern Bank of Kentucky, or any other Eastern Bank. Send no notes larger than $20. Levi Coffin had no money for me. I paid $20 for this gift. No money to get back to Philadelphia. It was not understood that I would have to be at any expense seeking aid. One half of my time has been used in trying to find persons to assist when I may arrive on the Ohio River, in which I have failed, except Storman. Having no letter of introduction to Storman from any source, on which I could fully rely, I traveled two hundred miles around to find out his stability. I have found many abolitionists, nearly all of whom have made propositions, which themselves would not comply with, and nobody else would. Already I have traveled over 3,000 miles, 2,400 by steamboat, 200 by railroad, 100 by stage, 400 on foot, 48 in a skiff. I have yet 500 miles to go to the plantation to commence operations. I have been two weeks on the decks of steamboats, three nights out, two of which I got perfectly wet. If we had had paper money, as McKim desired, it would have been destroyed. I have not been entertained gratis at any place except Storman's. I had $126 when I left Philadelphia, 100 from you, 26 mine. Telegraph to station at Evansville, 33 miles from Storman's, and at Vinclure's, 25 miles from Storman's. The Wabash route is considered the safest route. No one has ever been lost from Storman's to Canada. Some have been lost between Storman's and the Ohio. The wolves have never suspected Storman. Your asking aid in money for a case properly belonging east of Ohio is detested. If you have sent money to Cincinnati, you should recall it. I will have no opportunity to use it. Seth Conklin, Princeton, Gibson County, Indiana. P.S. First of April will be about the time Peter's family will arrive opposite Detroit. You should inform yourself how to find them there. I may have no opportunity. I will look promptly for your letter at Princeton till the 10th of March and longer if there should have been any delays by the mails. In March, as contemplated, Conklin arrived in Indiana, at the place designated, with Peter's wife and three children, and sent a thrilling letter to the writer, portraying in the most vivid light his adventurous flight from the hour they left Alabama until their arrival in Indiana. In this report he stated that instead of starting early in the morning, owing to some unforeseen delay on the part of the family, they did not reach the designated place till towards day, which greatly exposed them in passing a certain town which he had hoped to avoid. But as his brave heart was bent on prosecuting his journey without further delay, 
he concluded to start at all hazards, notwithstanding the dangers he apprehended from passing said town by daylight. For safety he endeavored to hide his freight by having them all lie flat down on the bottom of the skiff, covered with blankets, concealing them from the effulgent beams of the early morning sun, or rather from the Christian wolves who might perchance espy him from the shore in passing the town. The wind blew fearfully. Conklin was rowing heroically when loud voices from the shore hailed him, but he was utterly deaf to the sound. Immediately two or three guns were fired in the direction of the skiff, but he heeded not the significant call. Consequently, here ended this difficulty. He supposed, as the wind was blowing so hard, those on shore who hailed him must have concluded that he did not hear them, and that he meant no disrespect in treating them with seeming indifference. Whilst many straits and great dangers had to be passed, this was the greatest before reaching their destination. But suffice it to say that the glad tidings which this letter contained filled the breast of Peter with unutterable delight, and his friends and relations with wonder beyond degree. Footnote. In some unaccountable manner, this last letter Conklin ever penned, perhaps, has been unfortunately lost. End footnote. No fond wife had ever waited with more longing desire for the return of her husband than Peter had for this blessed news. All doubts had disappeared, and a well-grounded hope was cherished that within a few short days Peter and his fond wife and children would be reunited in freedom on the Canada side, and that Conklin and the friends would be rejoicing with joy unspeakable over this great triumph. But alas, before the few days had expired, the subjoined brief paragraph of news was discovered in the morning ledger. Runaway Negroes Caught At Vincennes, Indiana, on Saturday last, a white man and four Negroes were arrested. The Negroes belonged to B. McKiernan of South Florence, Alabama, and the man who was running them off calls himself John H. Miller. The prisoners were taken charge of by the Marshal of Evansville, April 9th. How suddenly these sad tidings turned into mourning and gloom, the hope and joy of Peter and his relations no pen could possibly describe. At least the writer will not attempt it here, but will at once introduce a witness who met the noble Conklin and the panting fugitives in Indiana and proffered them sympathy and advice and it may safely be said from a truer and more devoted friend of the slave they could not have received counsel. Evansville, Indiana, March 31, 1851 William Still Dear Sir, On last Tuesday I mailed a letter to you written by Seth Conklin. I presume you have received that letter. It gave an account of his rescue of the family of your brother. If that is the last news you have had from them, I have very painful intelligence for you. They passed on from near Princeton, where I saw them and had a lengthy interview with them, up north, I think twenty-three miles above Vincennes, Indiana, where they were seized by a party of men and lodged in jail. Telegraphic dispatches were sent all through the South. I have since learned that the Marshal of Evansville received a dispatch from Tuscumbia to look out for them. By some means, he and the master, so says report, went to Vincennes and claimed the fugitives, chained Mr. Conklin, and hurried all off. Mr. Conklin wrote to Mr. David Storman, Princeton, as soon as he was cast into prison, to find bail. So soon as we got the letter and could get off, two of us were about setting off to render all possible aid, when we were told they all had passed, a few hours before, through Princeton, Mr. Conklin in chains. What kind of process was had, if any, I know not. I immediately came down to this place, and learned that they had been put on a boat at 3 p.m., 
did not arrive until six. Now all hopes of their recovery are gone. No case ever so enlisted my sympathies. I had seen Mr. Conklin in Cincinnati. I had given him aid and counsel. I happened to see them after they landed in Indiana. I heard Peter and Levin tell their tale of suffering, shed tears of sorrow for all of them. But now, since they have fallen prey to the unmerciful bloodhounds of this state, and have been again dragged back to unrelenting bondage, I am entirely unmanned. And poor Conklin, I fear for him. When he is dragged back to Alabama, I fear they will go far beyond the utmost rigor of the law, and vent their savage cruelty upon him. It is with pain I have to communicate these things, but you may not hear them from him. I could not get to see him or them, as Vincennes is about thirty miles from Princeton, where I was when I heard of the capture. I take pleasure in stating that, according to the letter he, Conklin, wrote to Mr. D. Stewart, Mr. Conklin did not abandon them, but risked his own liberty to save them. He was not with them when they were taken, but went afterwards to take them out of jail upon a writ of habeas corpus, when they seized him too and lodged him in prison. I write in much haste. If I can learn any more facts of importance, I may write you. If you desire to hear from me again, or if you should learn anything specific from Mr. Conklin, be pleased to write me at Cincinnati, where I expect to be in a short time. If curious to know your correspondent, I may say I was formerly editor of the new Concord Free Press, Ohio. I only add that every case of this kind only tends to make me abhor my, no, this country more and more. It is the devil's government, and God will destroy it. Yours for the slave, N. R. Johnston. P.S. I broke open this letter to write you some more. The foregoing pages were written at night. I expected to mail it the next morning before leaving Evansville, but the boat for which I was waiting came down about three in the morning, so I had to hurry on board, bringing the letter along. As it now is, I am not sorry, for coming down, on my way to St. Louis, as far as Paducah, there I learned from a colored man at the wharf that, that same day, in the morning, the master and the family of fugitives arrived off the boat and had then gone on their journey to Tuscumbia, but that the white man, Mr. Conklin, had got away from them about twelve miles upriver. It seems he got off the boat some way, near or at Smithland, Kentucky, a town at the mouth of the Cumberland River. I presume the report is true, and hope he will finally escape, though I was also told they were in pursuit of him. Would that the others had also escaped. Peter and Levin could have done so, I think, if they had had resolution. One of them rode a horse, he not tied, either, behind the coach in which the others were. He followed, apparently, contented and happy. From report they told their master, and even their pursuers, before the master came, that Conklin had decoyed them away. They came unwillingly. I write on a very unsteady boat. Yours, N. R. Johnston. End of Section 2 Well, there was certainly quite quite a bit of information uh, delivered in that piece. Uh, the first thing that came to my mind was the, the quote, the best laid plans of mice and men sometimes go awry. Uh, certainly, um, Mr. Conklin uh, had to divert his plan several times, um, with McCarran being on the boat, on the ferry boat that they were to escape on. 
and uh, I think Peter's reuniting with his brother William uh, was brought about by providential intercession having been separated for 40 years and the person that Peter approaches uh, for help and information is none other than his brother William Steele and if that isn't providential intercession I don't know what is I'm also impressed with the amount of money that Peter uh, was able to save $500 which was uh, quite a bit of money uh, for the 1850s uh, particularly for someone who was being held in bondage um, and having been enslaved for 40 years. Uh, quite remarkable. Well, and, he was enslaved for 40, for 40 years. Uh, if you uh, remember from the reading that uh, his mom escaped twice. The second time yeah. she uh, escaped, she had to leave Peter and his brother behind. So exactly. a Jewish a Jewish um, uh, merchant by the name of uh, Joseph Friedman helped him uh, trick the uh, slave master into uh, selling him. And once he sold him, he, um, Friedman helped him buy his free papers in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I, from there he went to Philadelphia looking for his mom, and he was reunited to uh, William. Yeah, the... Uh... The uh, the ruse had to work because the Alabama laws prevented uh, slaves from buying their buying their own way out of bondage, and the owners were prohibited from uh, uh, giving their slaves freedom. So that was quite ingenious, I think, ingenious for them to uh, come up with that ruse to get Peter out of there, and mm-hmm. then coming up with Seth Conklin. Um, to go in and attempt to get his wife and two children. Uh, quite a remarkable story. And uh, very well written uh, letters, I thought. Mm-hmm. Very clear and precise and uh, puts the reader right there uh, with Seth and uh, Mr. Conklin. Apparently he was captured uh, as along with... Uh, Peter's wife and two children. And Fortune. Uh, uh, Fortune. Is that, yeah. Escambia, Alabama. Did I right. hear that right? Yeah. Right. And the miles that he traveled, three thousand miles, uh, stagecoach, riverboat, uh, Mr. Right. Compton. Four hundred of that was on foot. And um, you see he was running out of money. He was asking for more money. Exactly. He was saying he was going to leave the family with, you know, in the hands of a another abolitionist because he couldn't promise that he'd get them all the way to, to Canada. But he was waiting on this money, so money was very important. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the um, escapes on the Underground Railroad. So we're going to go to the last 15 minutes of the clip, and we might come in the middle of it, but um, I think it's worth it. So hold on one second. Okay. at from them that would enslave him. When on Monday morning I learned that the fugitives had passed through the place on Sabbath and Conklin in chains, probably at the very time I was speaking on the subject referred to, my heart sank within me. And even yet, 
I cannot but exclaim, when I think of it, O oh, Father, how long ere thou wilt arise to avenge the wrongs of the poor slave? Indeed, my dear brother, his ways are very mysterious. We have the consolation, however, to know that all this is for the best. Our Redeemer does all things well. When he hung upon the cross, his poor, broken-hearted disciples could not understand the providence. It was dark time to them. And yet that was an event that was fraught with more joy to the world than any that has occurred or could occur. Let us stand at our post and wait God's time. Let us have on the whole armor of God and fight for the right, knowing that though we may fall in battle, the victory will be ours sooner or later. May God lead you into all truth and sustain you in your labors, and fulfill your prayers and hopes. Adieu. N. R. Johnston Letters from Mr. Levi Coffin The following letters on the subject were received from the untiring and devoted friend of the slave, Levi Coffin, who for many years had occupied in Cincinnati a similar position to that of Thomas Garrett in Delaware, a sentinel and watchman commissioned of God to succor the fleeing bondman. Cincinnati Fourth month, 10th, 1851. Friend William Still, We have sorrowful news from our friend Conklin, through the papers and otherwise. I received a letter a few days ago from a friend near Princeton, Indiana, stating that Conklin and the four slaves are in prison in Vincennes, and that their trial would come on in a few days. He states that they rode seven days and nights in the skiff, and got safe to Harmony, Indiana, on the Wabash River, thence to Princeton, and were conveyed to Vincennes by friends, where they were taken. The papers state that they were all given up to the Marshal of Evansville, Indiana. We have telegraphed to different points to try to get some information concerning them, but failed. The last information is published in the Times of yesterday, though quite incorrect in the particulars of the case. Enclosed is the slip containing it. I fear all is over in regard to the freedom of the slaves. If the last account be true, we have some hope that Conklin will escape from those bloody tyrants. I cannot describe my feelings on hearing this sad intelligence. I feel ashamed to my own country. Oh, what shall I say? Surely a God of justice will avenge the wrongs of the oppressed. Thine for the poor slave, Levi Coffin. N.B. If thou hast any information, please write me forthwith. Cincinnati Fifth month, eleventh, eighteen fifty one. William Still. Dear friend, thy letter of first instant came duly to hand, but not being able to give any further information concerning our friend Conklin, I thought it best to wait a little before I wrote, still hoping to learn something more definite concerning him. We that became acquainted with Seth Conklin and his hazardous enterprises here at Cincinnati, who were very few, have felt intense and inexpressible anxiety about them, and particularly about poor Seth, since we heard of his falling into the hands of the tyrants. I fear that he has fallen victim to their inhuman thirst for blood. I seriously doubt the rumor that he had made his escape. I fear that he was sacrificed. Language would fail to express my feelings, the intense and deep anxiety I felt about them for weeks before I heard of their capture in Indiana, and then it seemed too much to bear. Oh, my heart almost bleeds when I think of it. The hopes of the dear family all blasted by the wretched bloodhounds in human shape. And poor Seth, after all his toil and dangerous, 
shrewd, and wise management, and almost unheard of adventures, the many narrow and almost miraculous escapes, then to be given up to the Indianians, to those fiendish tyrants, to be sacrificed. Oh, shame, shame! My heart aches, my eyes fill with tears. I cannot write more. I cannot dwell longer on this painful subject now. If you get any intelligence, please inform me. Friend N. R. Johnston, who took so much interest in them and saw them just before they were taken, has just returned to the city. He is a minister of the Covenanter Order. He is truly a lovely man, and his heart is full of the milk of humanity, one of our best anti-slavery spirits. I spent last evening with him. He related the whole story to me as he had it from friend Conklin and the mother and children, and then the story of their capture. We wept together. He found thy letter when he got here. He said he would write the whole story to thee in a few days, as far as he could. He can tell it much better than I can. Conklin left his carpet sack and clothes here with me, except a shirt or two which he took with him. What shall I do with them? For if we do not hear from him soon, we must conclude that he is lost, and the report of his escape all a hoax. Thy friend, Levi Coffin. Stunning and discouraging as this horrible ending was to all concerned, and serious as the matter looked in the eyes of Peter's friends with regard to Peter's family, he could not for a moment abandon the idea of rescuing them from the jaws of the destroyer. But most formidable difficulties stood in the way of obtaining correspondence with reliable persons in Alabama. Indeed, it seemed impossible to find a merchant, lawyer, doctor, planter, or minister who was not too completely interlinked with slavery to be relied upon to manage a negotiation of this nature. Whilst waiting and hoping for something favorable to turn up, the subjoined letter from the owner of Peter's family was received and is here inserted precisely as it was written, spelled, and punctuated. McKiernan's Letter South Florence, Alabama 6 August, 1851 Mr. William Still, Number 31 North 5th Street, Philadelphia. Sir, a few days since, Mr. Louis Farrington of Tuscumbia, Alabama, showed me a letter dated 6 June 51 from Cincinnati, signed Samuel Lewis, in behalf of a Negro man by the name of Peter Gist, who informed the writer of the letter that you were his brother and wished an answer to be directed to you as he, Peter, would be in Philadelphia. The object of the letter was to purchase from me three Negroes, that is, Peter's wife, and three children, two sons and one girl. The name of said Negroes are the woman, Viney, the mother, eldest son Peter, twenty-one or two years old, second son Levin, nineteen or twenty years, one girl about thirteen or fourteen years old. The husband and father of these people once belonged to a relation of mine by the name of Gist, now deceased, and some few years since, he, Peter, was sold to a man by the name of Friedman, who removed to Cincinnati, Ohio, and took Peter with him. Of course, Peter became free by the voluntary act of the master sometime last March. A white man by the name of Miller appeared in the neighborhood and abducted the above Negroes, was caught at Vincennes, Indy, with said Negroes, and was there convicted of stealing and remanded back to Alabama to abide the penalty of the law, and on his return meet his just reward by getting drowned at the mouth of the Cumberland River on the Ohio, in attempting to make his escape, 
I recovered and brought back said four negroes, or as you would say, colored people, under the belief that Peter the husband was accessory to the offense, thereby putting me to much expense and trouble to the amount of $1,000, which if he gets them, he or his friends must refund these four negroes are worth in the market about 4000 for they are extraordinary fine and likely, and but for the fact of elopement, I would not take $8,000 for them. But as the thing now stands, you can say to Peter and his new discovered relations in Philadelphia, I will take 5000 for the four colored people, and if this will suit him, and he can raise the money. I will deliver them to him or his agent at Paducah, at the mouth of Tennessee River, said Negroes, but the money must be deposited in the hands of some respectable person at Paducah before I remove the property. It would not be safe for Peter to come to this country. Write a line on receipt of this, and let me know Peter's views on the above. I am yours, etc., B. McKiernan. N.B. Say to Peter to write and let me know his views immediately, as I am determined to act in a way, if he don't take this offer, he will never have another opportunity. B. McKiernan. William Stills Answer Philadelphia, August 16, 1851 To B. McKiernan, Esquire Sir, I have received your letter from South Florence, Alabama, under the date of the 6th instant. To say that it took me by surprise, as well as afforded me pleasure, for which I feel very much indebted to you, is no more than true. In regard to your informants of myself, Mr. Thornton of Alabama, and Mr. Samuel Lewis of Cincinnati. To them both I am a stranger. However, I am the brother of Peter, referred to, and with the fact of his having a wife and three children in your service I am also familiar. This brother, Peter, I have only had the pleasure of knowing for the brief space of one year and thirteen days, although he is now past forty, and I twenty-nine years of age. Time will not allow me at present, or I should give you a detailed account of how Peter became a slave, the forty long years which intervened between the time he was kidnapped when a boy, being only six years of age, and his arrival in this city from Alabama, one year and fourteen days ago, when he was reunited to his mother, five brothers, and three sisters. None but a father's heart can fathom the anguish and sorrows felt by Peter during the many vicissitudes through which he has passed. He looked back to his boyhood and saw himself snatched from the tender embraces of his parents and home to be made a slave for life. During all his prime days he was in the faithful and constant service of those who had no just claim upon him. In the meanwhile he married a wife who bore him eleven children, the greater part of whom were emancipated from the troubles of life by death, and only three survived. To them and his wife he was devoted. Indeed, I have never seen attachment between parents and children, or husband and wife, more entire than was manifested in the case of Peter. Through these many years of servitude, Peter was sold and resold from one state to another, from one owner to another, till he reached the forty-ninth year of his age, when, in a good providence, through the kindness of a friend and the sweat of his brow, he regained the God-given blessings of liberty. He eagerly sought his parents and home with all possible speed and pains, when, to his heart's joy, he found his relatives. Your present humble correspondent is the youngest of Peter's brothers, and the first one of the family he saw after arriving in this part of the country. I think you could not fail to be interested in hearing how we became known to each other, and the proof of our being brothers, etc., all of which I should be most glad to relate, but time will not permit me to do so.
The news of this wonderful occurrence, of Peter finding his kindred, was published quite extensively, shortly afterwards, in various newspapers, in this quarter, which may account for the fact of Miller's knowledge of the whereabouts of the fugitives. Let me say, it is my firm conviction that no one had any hand in persuading Miller to go down from Cincinnati, or any other place, after the family. As glad as I should be, and as much as I would like to do for the liberation of Peter's family, now no longer young, and his three likely children, in whom he prides himself, how much if you are a father, you can imagine. Yet I would not, and could not, think of persuading any friend to peril his life, as would be the case, in an errand of that kind. As regards the price fixed upon by you for the family, I must say I do not think it possible to raise half that amount, though Peter authorized me to say he would give you twenty-five hundred for them. Probably he is not aware, as I am, how difficult it is to raise so large a sum of money from the public. The applications for such objects are so frequent among us in the North, and have always been so liberally met, that it is no wonder if many get tired of being called upon. To be sure, some of us brothers own some property, but no great amount, certainly not enough to enable us to bear so great a burden. Mother owns a small farm in New Jersey, on which she has lived for nearly forty years, from which she derives her support in old age. This small farm contains between forty and fifty acres, and is the fruit of my father's toil. Two of my brothers own small places also, but they have young families, and consequently consume nearly as much as they make, with the exception of adding some improvements to their places. For my own part, I am employed as a clerk for a living, but my salary is quite too limited to enable me to contribute any great amount towards so large a sum as is demanded. Thus you see how we are situated financially. We have plenty of friends, but little money. Now, sir, allow me to make an appeal to your humanity. Although we are aware of your power to hold this property, those poor slaves, mother, daughter, and two sons, that in no part of the United States could they escape and be secure from your claim. Nevertheless, would your understanding, your heart, or your conscience reprove you, should you restore them, without price, that dear freedom which is theirs by right of nature, or would you not feel a satisfaction in so doing which all the wealth of the world could not equal? At all events, could you not so reduce the price as to place it in the power of Peter's relatives and friends to raise the means for their purchase? At first, I doubt not, but that you will think my appeal very unreasonable. But, sir, serious reflection will decide whether the money be demanded by you, after all, will be of as great a benefit to you as the satisfaction you would find in bestowing so great a favor upon those whose entire happiness in this life depends mainly upon your decision in the matter. If the entire family cannot be purchased or freed, what can Vina and her daughter be purchased for? Hoping, sir, to hear from you at your earliest convenience, I subscribe myself, your obedient servant, William Still. To Mr. McKiernan, Esquire. No reply to this letter was ever received from McKiernan. The cause of his reticence can be as well conjectured by the reader as the writer. Time will not admit of information there. Very intriguing uh, what was going on. So sorry to hear uh, Mr. Conklin drowned while again attempting to escape uh, from the clutches of the bounty hunters. Well, he wasn't escaping. He was the uh, person who was helping 
Peter's family to escape. Well, yes, uh, but he was also captured and was going to be taken back to Alabama as well to stand right. trial. Did I hear that no. right? No, you were right. Yeah, and uh, was going by a pseudo name, a.k.a. Mr. Miller. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought it was very shrewd of uh, William Still uh, in his negotiations. With who? With McCarran on the price. Mm-hmm. I think McCarran was wanting upwards of $5,000, which surprised mm-hmm. me, really that he would be willing to uh, sell uh, Peter's wife and children. Uh, but the price was a little outlandish, as did William Steele. And uh, I thought very artfully uh, uh, negotiated and put up uh, some justifiable reasons as to why that uh, particular sum, and gave him a bottom line sum, I think, a sum of money, $2,500, I believe. He wanted 5000 Yeah, he wanted 5000 but the counter offer was 2500 Oh, still was offering him 2500 yeah. He said yeah. that he needed so much because of the bounty hunters he was forced to pay. Exactly. He yeah. And he, uh, he also uh, warned that Peter better not show up in that area because... Um, uh, he was um, he was walking, as you know, the Fugitive Slave Law. Yeah. Peter and William were all now in trouble. Exactly. And Conklin had mentioned in his letter how uh, how much he was under surveillance and suspected in that community as being someone there to help uh, free a slave or two. So, yeah, he was uh, – I was also intrigued by the network of letters uh, and the number of people that were involved, uh, the minister, R.N. Johnson, um, the gentleman, Levi Coffin, um, and how they – and they couldn't trust a lot of the post offices. Uh, the letters had to be entrusted with individuals who happened to be traveling to and fro. Uh, Quite intriguing. Some of that would make a great movie, you know? Right, right. And I was amazed um, how many safe havens there were in the Deep South. Yes, yeah. In Indiana and uh, when they were captured, there were, you know, there were so many uh, safe havens, you know, um, Princeton, um, Indiana, so... I've been in contact with Princeton, and I want to go visit there to see these uh, underground little stops myself in prison. But what did you think about what Peter's name, what McCarran called him? Um, I missed that part. What Peter called who? What McCarran called Peter, Peter Gist. Oh, yeah, Peter Gist. Yeah, I did pick that up. I did pick Mm -hmm. that up. Yeah, is that one of your ancestors? Oh uh, yeah, that's what that's what started this whole book. Was uh, when I read that that line um, after I was doing a research paper. When I read that line, I said, "Wow!" Because I had been looking through the book, like many other people have done over the last couple of, few decades, rather, looking for relatives 
And uh, I went through the entire book, and here it is. It and Peter yeah, had been, and he had been handed off uh, to a number of slaveholders. Uh, no, he handed off to one family. It was a good family. And McKinnon was the overseer and um, one of the last families. But um, as many slave families uh, were um, exchanged and bequeathed, uh, this happened to Peter. When the first um, uh, was uh, when the first one died, the nephews got them two nephews, and they, the brothers were split up. Levin and Peter were split up, but they were always within the Gist family. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So there was one Gist or another, and if we go back to Samuel Gist, who was a Quaker from England, who was once a white slave himself before his master died. Um, you find that some of the families, so some of the Gist families did not believe in slavery, and the other half did, and they were fighting amongst each other um, over uh, the emancipation. So even though one Gist may free you, another set of Gist may say, you know, you have no right. That was supposed to be my my property. So they were kidnapping each other's uh property within the family and lawsuits were going back and forth. And I noticed Steele and his response had to play into that theme of properties. Right. Uh, only mentioning at the end that it was their God given right to be free. But uh, to assuage uh Mr McCarran he he fed into this idea that uh that he had Peter was property. He was very shrewd, and they used that passage from the scripture early on to be as shrewd yeah. as a serpent, but as harmless as a dove. And um, these underground railroad conductors were the best manipulators um, of that system. Um, you know, and I, I think of Booker T. Washington as one of them. He, he has so many similarities with William Steele being able to play both sides. You know, here he is financing Harriet and John Brown. Mm-hmm. But he's also working within the law um, when he's above ground. But underground, he's doing all sorts of things that uh, no one would be able to detect during the daytime. You know, so I really admire, you know, his shrewdness and now he's he was able to get so much done. Um, any other questions before we close? Well, any I wanted to point out um, from the reading was the use of the cake for identification mm-hmm. purposes. The cake, right. Mm-hmm. The, um, his wife would know that whoever presented that cake was in good standing with him. So they had a lot of signals and signs worked out along this Underground Railroad. Um, right. I, and that was the, the basis of the quilt. You know, we were saying yes. in the earlier shows with Tate Larson, I think that's her name, that yes. this material, clothing material, was part of our roadmap. You know, um, that piece of material, we didn't have much, but 
but that material from the clothes, a piece of, of garment, um, was was very important. It, it was a signal. It signified a lot. It talked about different special occasions in the family. Um, it, like many people right now graduating from college or whatever, and you know, having proms. That prom dress, uh, a little piece of that prom dress would be taken off and bedded into a quilt as a symbol of a special occasion. And back during slavery, um, if we knew that your grandmother had escaped or your mother escaped to Philadelphia, uh, she would leave some material for more reasons than one. So I thought that was um, awesome how, you know, you know, William Steele made sure that he recorded, you know, these facts so that when we are confronted with people like Kate Larson who would deny that or would call something that we did on a, a daily basis as fantastical, that we would have some proof to say it wasn't fantastical, not to us. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe from theatrical 200 years later, um, but back then that's how we, you know, we operated. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. What did you think about the preface? But ask your question and we'll go back to mine. You were saying how long something? Well, no, I was asking, uh, wanted to know how many chapters will be involved for our listeners. Well, so far this company has uploaded thirty three different excerpts. Thirty three usually eight hundred pages. So I don't know, you know, how, what order they're going in. I'm just extremely happy that they're doing it, and, you know, we're going to go through it. And, by the way, we're looking for scholars, underground railroad, genealogists, people that are connected to this book and want to learn more about it to come on the show and discuss it. Uh, This is our first night talking about the first chapter of the preface in the first chapter, um, but uh, we would like for you to come on the show and share your stories of the Underground Railroad. Um, this is exciting, and um, I was asking you, Preston, about the preface. What do you think about his sentiments on why he was motivated to write this book? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. What did you think about his comments in his preface about why he wrote the book? Oh, why he wrote the book. Uh, yeah, I was very impressed with that. Uh, first of all, to lay the history down, you know, again, it's a theme that you've talked about um, quite a number of times, and that is we black folks writing our own uh, scripts and writing our own narrative um, so that the true experience, I mean, I've got quite a bit just out of the preference and uh, the first couple of chapters that we heard, uh, the experience of those people that were there, that were involved, and uh, that history being laid down for us, I thought was very impressive. Yeah, I did too, and it was the same sentiments that were shared with Osborne that we just had on last week, the last uh, show. Do you recall what Osborne was saying when he had to write his book? Osborne from um, John Brown's Raiders. Five black men, one of the five black men. Oh yeah. Um, the um, the only one to survive. 
exactly. Uh, something to the effect that if we, you know, if we don't understand the history, it's not that we're bound to repeat it, but we won't be any better able to deal with our future if we don't understand uh, right. that history where we're and at. Osborne was upset that all the stories in the in the media during his time um, was distorting the true facts. And exactly. He came, he came out of hiding um, to write, this, you know, his side of the story, which was to say that um, many of the uh, blacks in the area were there to help out John Brown. But they were saying that they were too afraid nobody would assist John Brown. And he was very upset about that, that they were depicting the, the enslaved blacks as as um, cowards. And he said just the opposite. Uh, what was the real truth was the slaveholders were the cowards. Blubbering, he used the word blubbering, cowards who put up the white, um, poor whites to fight for them. And they refused to come in and fight for their so-called property. And then, um, so I, I thought that these two men had um, very similar sentiments about why they were motivated. That was one reason why William Steele was motivated. But exactly. The other and the notion that's not told today that blacks were passive uh, in their in the fight for freedom. Say it again. That, that blacks, blacks were passive. You know, they they're distilling the notion that blacks were passive. But in other words, it's to be known that blacks were very aggressive right. in the, for their own freedom. That it wasn't right. a, that just came to them for, you know, out of the blue or what have you, but they were actually engaged in their own freedom uh, with money, with arms, uh, with assisting one another on this Underground Railroad, uh, et cetera. They just didn't sit around uh, waiting to be free, you know. And and the last thing I'd like to say about it is that, um, you know, William still took uh, a great, great um, risk writing these stories down. Um, many people burnt up anything related, anything in writing about the Underground Railroad, but he hid his stories uh, for years in a cemetery. And we also had that cemetery um, on our show, Eden Cemetery, if you recall. Yeah, I recall that. Right. He was hiding all of his uh, documents in that cemetery, and when the war was over. He uh, he wrote these stories, and I was just fascinated how many wealthy African Americans who were born free, or even um, had escaped, would still take great risk to help their slave brethren. Um, you know, this part of the story hasn't been told, and I think this book, his book, shows you that there were so many countless men. And he has illustrations in this book. Um, many of the documentaries about the Underground Railroad um, use his book to show our part of the story. Um, Harper's uh, Magazine, a lot of the the uh, magazines and literatures and uh, different uh, journals of that era show us looking like buffoons and different light, you know, negative light. Um, but his book and many of the other black abolitionists 
they show pictures of us in, in, in a positive way. Do we know if that book is available today? Oh, it's online everywhere now. Um, I have about three or four copies I purchased when I first discovered the book. I was so shocked about the story, and it was so impressive. I knew I had to buy as many as I could get my hands on. I have one by Ebony. Um, Ebony, uh, they uh, published it. Um, it was published several times. You get it online, and there's a soft cover edition that's out now. Okay. So, um, you know, it's, it's a must-have. Every family, every um, African-American family, any family that is uh, about teaching their children the true story of freedom and liberty that America is striving for should have a copy of this book because it's the best that America can offer people from different races and nationalities and religions coming together to um, free people, not based on man's law, but on God's law. And, you know, many of the Southerners say they broke the law by being involved with this. And um, I say that um, these people, in this case, Seth Cochran, he was a white Quaker, um, the Jewish merchant that was involved with Peter Giss, you know, they were Jewish people. I mean, so this story alone shows you how many different people were involved and felt that human rights was very important, and, and that was their motivation. And I think that's the best best part of American history um, that we have in in the world. Yeah, and I think you're right on target about the uh, strong belief in faith and in God and, and the divine right of man to be free. Um, right. Really and they had a problem. higher power. And they all, you know, obeyed their higher power by whatever name they wanted to call their God. They all had the same sentiment that slavery was wrong. Human rights was, um, you know, it was superior. It was it, it, it transcend. Anything that um, those terrible laws were trying, the terrible laws that was being enforced at the time. And we'll be back on the air Thursday. Yes. Yes, we're going to have a show on Thursday night. Um, I don't have my calendar in front of me, but you know, I usually wait till last minute to post everything. But we're having a show. Thursday, I'm trying to remember who we have scheduled. Mm, I can't can't think of the person right now, but we have some great people coming on. Um, people that I met from the um, arts, or what is it, the book fair in New York City a couple of weeks ago. So I met a bunch of scholars and authors and professors, and I have a series of them coming on. But we are looking for underground railroad experts um, and genealogists and people that are connected uh, to preserving the underground railroad story. Come on and talk about William Steele's book. And if they wanted to get on to talk to you, how do they get in contact with you, Leslie? Um, they can uh, email me at L-E-S-L-E-Y, Leslie. That's with E-Y at the end, not I-E, at the gist of freedom dot com and that's spelled the T H E just G I S as in Sam T as in Tom of Freedom 
F-R-E-E-D-O-N.com, and you can listen to our show on iTunes, on www.blackhistoryuniversity.com, and also on Blog Talk Radio at um, Black History Blog. Again, on Blog Talk Radio, www.blackhistoryblog.com. And um, you can email me, send me a message through Facebook. My Facebook is Leslie Gist, L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T. And, um, you know, we we love doing what we're doing, don't we, Preston? Yes, we do. And um, we like to have more people involved. Very much so. I want to make one other comment about the reading. Uh, I got a note Mm -hmm. here that I was so impressed with in terms of the vividness of the reporting. And these people, you know, they were on this skiff, and if you know what a skiff looks like, it's a very small boat, and they were underneath some tarps and subjected to gunfire. And not only did they have to... Go ahead. Not only did they have to dodge and be aware of bounty hunters, but they also had to be on the lookout for wolves, you know? which meaning some, you know, people had to stay awake, to be on the lookout for the bounty hunters, the wolves. No, uh, wolves did, Wolves were in reference to um, people. They were? Oh, I thought it was yeah. wolves. Oh, like, no, oh. they spoke in code, um, mainly scriptures, biblical terms. And, yeah, the wolves were, were the low-life people. Bounty hunters and, and not bounty hunters. They were the um, opportunists, the people that would drop a dime on you. Uh huh. What we would call haters today. Right. Yeah. Snitch. Okay. Not really snitches, but someone you know that you know that would help a bounty hunter. It was very profitable to get involved with slave trade, and um, you know, so you had these people. For instance. I think it was Anthony Burns. Um, he was um, captured. I'm thinking about the Oberlin Rescue. Oh, yeah. No, John Price, I think it was. John Price and Oberlin Rescue. They used a little boy to trick him. Uh-huh. They paid him. You know, so they would, uh, you know, ask people to get involved to help help them trick someone into um, an entrapment. So that's what they were referring to when they say wolves, and we deal with that today. In various ways, you know, some people, opportunities. Any other comments about uh, reading? No. Uh, I uh, will be out first thing tomorrow, seeing if I can run down a copy of uh, William's book and uh, <laughs> get it as part of my library and get it out to my family members and friends. Mm-hmm. Get the word out. Hope they're listening this evening. Mm-hmm. Hope will continue to uh, uh, join us here on the guest mm-hmm. And the last thing I'd like to say before we go is you can hear the entire reading um, uninterrupted, what we uh, listened to tonight, on our other channel, which is www.blogtalkradio.com front slash black history, simply black history. Lab, blogtalkradio.com front slash black history. That is a channel where we do less talk and just play 
the um, book um, uninterrupted. So um, I will give you the last words. Uh, that is the last word. All right, then let's find the music, and um, we will say good night, and I wish everyone a wonderful night, and I hope you had a, a, an exciting, festive Mother's Day weekend. What did you do for your mom? I took her out to dinner. And your mom was a, isn't she part of some kind of serious organization? Yeah, she um, recently was um, accepted into the Daughters of the American Revolution Mm -hmm. uh, based on her patriot, uh, a lady by the name of Nancy Ward. Uh, And she's still with us at 91 years of age. And uh, took her out today in all her church finery, and had a had a very lovely day today. Wonderful. And granddaughter. Well, thank you for sharing that story, and we're still trying to get your mom on the show. So <laughs> connected to the daughters. But thanks again, uh, Preston. Everyone have a good night. Okay, you too. Okay, bye bye.